Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we go to the movies and find some personal finance inspiration in some unlikely places. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, great to see you for another week. Great to see you as well. Can I drop a music nugget on you that I just found out last night? Sure. All right. This blew my mind, and maybe it's just me and I was living under a rock forever, but I'm reading a fantastic book called uh, Nothing But a Good Time, which is an oral history of 80s hair metal. If you know me, that should be very on brand. And uh, I'm in the section on Quiet Riot right now, whose mega hit is a song called Come On, Feel the Noise. Come to learn, that's not their song at all. That was a cover of a song by Slade, which I listened to, and it basically sounds exactly the same, just with less kick guitar. Sorry, with less killer guitar. Um, (laughs) It goes a little bit further. Another Quiet Riot song one of their you know handful that might be household names you seem less interested than my wife which which says something ross i'm i'm very interested okay. Dan. mama we're all crazy now you know if, if you go like one or two deep into quiet riot you're going to get that song also a slade cover this is crazy how have how has slade not been in my rotation and how have i not known that until 2021 I mean, that's kind of weird that they're doing multiple covers of the same band. Like, maybe you just hire them as a songwriter or something and stop stealing all their content. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But Quiet Riot did justice to both of those songs. I'm a huge fan. Um, And for anyone looking for a book on hair metal, uh, Nothing But A Good Time, highly recommended. Oral history of the 80s hair metal scene. Yeah, that that's not my genre, as as I think you do know. So um, I certainly have appreciation for that, but that's not exactly where I spend a lot of my my music listening time. That's okay. I think uh, I think to each their own, and it's probably for the better that we're not all hair metal fans in this country. So Dan, I think we need to open our show with a bit of a I'm not going to call it a retraction, but a correction on something that you and I said about credit scores. We got the range wrong, at least in some parts of the spectrum. Yeah, so after our episode dropped, I got a call from family member and listener, Leon, thanks for listening, who let me know that he recently found out that credit scores actually go above 850. They, in fact, go to 900. And soon after telling you this, you actually had firsthand experience seeing this. I did. So I had sold a car in May of 2020 decided I didn't need it anymore because I wasn't going anywhere. Uh, And I finally broke down and decided I needed a new car. And so I went, ended up financing a piece of that car. And as the credit score came back, I was at like an 857. And I was very confused because I also thought it capped at 850. And I wasn't sure how I had broken the system with above average credit. But it turns out that's just part of how it works now. And you and I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure that's where negative interest comes from. When you have exceeded the maximum range, 
they actually pay you to buy the the good. I, I wish that that was how it worked because I would have been very excited if that were the case, but it was pretty cheap money. Yep, money is cheap. All right, so let's talk about our main topic today, which I think hopefully we're going to have some fun with because I think this is a fun idea. And the question is just whether or not you and I can land it and bring this home. What we're talking about are movies that we have taken personal finance lessons from, things that we think are interesting, either about investing or personal finance. Now, some of these are going to be Wall Street style movies, uh, but not all of them. So, Dan, when this came up, what was the first movie that came to mind for you? Okay, and this is a coincidence, but I'm going to tie this together with my hair metal comment earlier. So the first movie that came to mind when I was thinking finance is a movie I saw as a kid. Great film, Trading Places, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd. Uh, This movie, Trading Places, came out in 1983, I believe which is also the year that Quiet Riot released their breakthrough album, Metal Health. So if you wanted a, a feel-good connection between our banter up top and, and this topic, there it is. The year 1983, both Quiet Riot's Metal Health and Trading Places came out. But the reason I think of Trading Places is, first of all, it's the backdrop of the film is Wall Street. But I just remember as a kid hearing them talk about this thing, Orange Juice Futures. And I barely knew what a futures contract was. And an orange juice futures contract seems so ridiculous to me. And it was set in this comedic movie that I just assumed they were being, you know, funny. Come to find out, that's a real thing. So this movie helped kind of frame how deep the world of finance was and how complicated some of these instruments are. And you could really just go on forever learning about futures contracts currency trading and never get to the end of it. I actually think about futures. I mean, that's really the first tradable instruments that that existed as as far as I know. Uh, And futures kind of fall into that category. And we talked a little bit about options last week. But those type of like derivative products, I think, are really confusing for people. But when you think about the original use of a futures contract, it makes all the sense in the world. And you're seeing it right now. Look at what's going on in shipping and fuel prices and just the cost of things changing. If you could, as a user of those things, lock in the prices that you're going to pay, which is really all a futures contract is, that's an incredibly powerful tool to have. And we've seen over the years airlines choosing to lock in their fuel prices for an extended period of time. And there's a lot of value in that when companies have good foresight and, and been able to do that in an effective way. Now, the the flip side of it is that it also brings into play all of these speculators and people that just want to bet on it. And they're not actually intending to buy or take delivery of the orange juice, but they decide to play around in those contracts. And that introduces a lot of volatility. So uh, an area of the market that has a lot of positive things for the users, both the producers and the consumers of things like orange juice, coffee, right? All sorts of other things that have commodities trading associated with them. But uh, a lot of other noise gets mixed into that. Yeah, very interesting uh, topic of finance, especially if you're a producer or manufacturer. When we talked about this topic, Ross, you took this in a very different direction. What came to mind for you? I did. So the first one I'm going to talk about is a movie that I really love, uh, which is Cinderella Man. And Cinderella Man is a story, uh, if you haven't seen it, first of all, great movie. I would suggest going to going to watch that uh, right after you're done listening to the rest of our show. And Quiet Riot's Metal Health. Correct. We're, gonna, we're giving you a list of content, really, as part of our show today. Things that you should go check out. 
But Cinderella Man is a story of a boxer, uh, and through the Great Depression, he was kind of a mid-level boxer. Boxing takes a dive. They stop doing that. He's working on the docks, and it's just his struggle to to feed his family and then kind of a an incredible comeback run. And what I take away from this is a couple things. There's a few really powerful moments where he is struggling deeply to provide for his family. They are, you know, rinsing out the milk container with water to kind of thin it out and make more milk type things going on, right? It's very, very dire financial situations. And what I remember about this and kind of think about is how powerful those memories can be. We're working with people all the time that have these kind of deep-rooted memories about their finances. And it may not be the Great Depression, but maybe they were raised by people that uh, experienced that. Or they had their own financial trauma and things that get so rooted deeply into their psyche and their financial decision making that it really colors everything they do financially for the rest of their lives. And we've seen folks that are, by all measures, doing very, very well, quite wealthy, and they're almost scared to, to spend their money. Uh, there is a a set of nerves that drives them to continue to be frugal. And in many ways, that's probably why they have the wealth that they do, is that that driving power of wanting to be frugal and being conservative with how they choose to spend money has been a uh, something that, that contributed to them being able to accumulate. But on the flip side of that, in some ways, I view it as our role as a financial planner is to help people to understand what they can spend comfortably, to make sure that they're able to enjoy their lives the best way possible. And in some cases, that means encouraging people to spend maybe at a higher level to find some enjoyment or to do more for their families while they're able to watch their family enjoy it and participate in it. Uh, and so I just take a lot of things away from Cinderella Man of both the trauma uh, that that uh, comes from that and then how that can affect us so much later down the road. And uh, I, I think it's really interesting. One of the things that I really enjoy as a financial planner is giving people permission, like you said, to spend money on things that they want, but haven't allowed themselves to do. And for a client or a person to just be aware of what formed their attitude towards money is really powerful because oftentimes in finance, and really I think in almost everything, you are a reaction to the generation before you. So you see what you see growing up, either money-wise or otherwise and form based on that observation, oftentimes in a, you know, in a reactionary way. All right. So the next one that we're going to talk about is really two different movies that in this context have very similar themes. Number one is Batman. And we could talk about basically any of the Batmans. I realize that's a big subject, but there's any number of Batmans. And I also saw Iron Man in this. All right. Now, you and I are both fans of uh, the Stern School of Business professor, Demodoran, who teaches valuation, writes an incredible blog that that we receive. And he, he just wrote a piece basically about ESG investing, environmental, social, and governance, and whether or not it was even realistic to find companies that are inherently good and doing good in the world, whether that as a portfolio manager could add value versus what is kind of a traditional model of what like Warren Buffett has done, which is keep his investing as investing. And not that he's interested in investing in companies that are doing bad, but he has taken his wealth and now he's giving back with it. And I think Batman and Iron Man are both examples of that, where you've got in Iron Man, a defense contractor, Stark Industries, kind of seen as a warmonger of sorts in terms of profiting from all of this 
you know, death and destruction going on in the world. And Tony Stark becomes incredibly rich and then uses that wealth to do good. Same thing with Batman, right? We don't know all of the things that Wayne Enterprises does, but let's assume that there's some things that are good and some things that maybe we're not super proud of. And then he turns all that wealth into becoming a vigilante and beating up bad guys at night. I think both of those are interesting examples versus do we take the more altruistic side and do we take the more conscious capitalism side of should we only be investing in companies that are doing a lot of good in the world while they're being profitable or do you flip it? I subscribe to that school of thought. I would rather invest where I think the investments can be profitable and then use those funds to do good the way I see good should be done. Now, there, there are two sides to that. One of the things that Demoterin says is it's very hard to measure how good a company is doing on the ESG front. Like All those factors are pretty arbitrary and they can be gamified. So how are you really telling what a company is doing? Now, there are certainly companies that maybe are explicitly doing things that you believe are bad, which are easy to exclude. Correct. I'm, I'm with you on that, right? So if you want to exclude things like vice stocks, or if you want to exclude gun manufacturers, or if you want to exclude energy companies, those are easy cuts to make because it's not so subjective of, is this good or bad? If you simply disagree with for-profit prisons as an industry, well, okay, great. Go ahead and cut those out of your portfolio. If you're trying to judge whether or not having you know, unlimited vacation days and friendly customer policies and things like that is going to make something a better investment or a better company and add alpha. That's a very different conversation and a lot more room for squishiness and people to kind of, you know, play with the numbers there. Yeah. So, so I like thinking of my investing like Iron Man and Batman, grow your portfolio and then do good with what you've earned. And for those interested, the blog that we're referring to from Demoterin is called Musings on the Market. It's a free blog, and I find it very informative. Uh, I love the read. Yeah, cer- certainly worth reading. And, and you and I almost always have a discussion around it every time he puts out a new post, because I, I think we find it really uh, fascinating and, and really helpful. All right, Dan, let's go to another funny one. Let's talk about Step Brothers. What, what's your takeaway from Step Brothers that comes up as a financial planning issue? So it's a very interesting financial planning scenario. Mixed families growing up with children from previous marriages. Uh, that's one thing that it presents. The other thing is kind of the, the boomerang generation of, of people returning home and relying on their parents for financial stability. In the case of stepbrothers, I'm not sure they ever left. I'm not sure the boomerang left in that case either, but but we're talking about if you haven't seen this movie, first of all, it's hysterical. It's fairly crude. There's a lot of lot of laughs in it, but uh, don't necessarily put it on around young kids. Uh, but you've got Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, thank you, that are playing basically forty year olds that never left the nest, and they both have uh, pretty successful parents that clearly love them would prefer that they were self-sustaining adults, but are having trouble cutting the cord on their kids because they care for them and they want them to be successful and not go through these financial hardships. And I think we hear some of these challenges quite a bit. In the movie, they also show some of those money talks with the children, which I think are are very uncomfortable in real life. There's a lot of love for your family, but also there's a point where you need to kind of nudge towards independence and how do you do that while being fair to to all the parties involved. I mean, we've seen Bill Gates and Warren Buffett both talk about this a lot as well, which is kind of the wanting to give your kids enough money that they can do anything, but not so much money that they can do nothing. 
And that's a really tough needle to, to thread when we're trying to think about how do you create comfort and safety net and kind of this loving embrace of a family that has done well and in some cases has very, very publicly become very wealthy. You know, those kids are not confused as to how much money their parents have. It, it's talked about constantly on shows like ours and many others. So, you know, you've kind of got that sort of dynamic and then you're trying not to create to pull another movie reference into this, a Billy Madison situation where you've got a kid that's just not doing anything and not being productive with their time, their talent, or developing any of that because they don't feel the need to. Uh, and I know that this is a struggle for for parents, particularly that are dealing with kids in, in any sort of whatever is causing the the lack of production there and, and kind of that lack of self-sustaining um, ability to go go forth and into the world. All right, so I think we've got two more on our list. The next one is one of my favorite finance movies because most of the Wall Street movies don't portray our industry in particularly favorable light, right? And some of those are really fantastic films and really entertaining for me. Um, I love Boiler Room, for example. I liked Margin Call, right? Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, there's just some great filmmaking around uh, the excitement of Wall Street, Wall Street itself with uh, Michael Douglas, right? Great, great movies. But I'm going to talk about Pursuit of Happiness, which is a Will Smith movie. Um, this, again, for me, kind of really tugs at the emotional heartstrings for a couple reasons. Um, number one, I see some similarity in my own path of kind of having watched somebody look very successful and uh, where Will Smith goes, hey, what do you do and how do you do it? He asks the banker uh, as he gets out of his Ferrari, like on Wall Street, and the guy says, I'm a stockbroker. And that kind of launches into this journey. My path wasn't quite that similar, but I definitely had a moment of looking at some people I respected a lot going, wow, that looks like it's a pretty good lifestyle. What are they doing? And is that a path for me? And that kind of started my exploration personally on that. But also, uh, just how hard he had to work to make it. Um, there is definitely kind of this churn and burn mentality that has existed in terms of the people trying to join a Wall Street firm, right? If you joined a company like a, a Morgan Stanley, where I worked at one point, right, the failure rates are exceptional. Most people that start as a rookie advisor in those programs will not make it. Now, they may go on and, and stay in the industry in some other capacity, but the number of people that simply fail out either because they give up or they don't make it, I, I find remarkably sad because it's kind of cutthroat in that sense. And watching Will Smith go through that as a struggling dad, trying to, to provide for his family, and then just being so persistent and so exceptionally resilient, I find that to be a really touching story. Love that film. I think part of why it resonates so much with me, and I'm sure many others, is they put the family right in front of that struggle. He's with his son, essentially as a single dad for most of the movie, and you just see his son being around him as Will Smith is trying to build up this life for him so he can provide for his son. Uh, really fantastic film. All right. The last one we're going to do today is a true Wall Street film, and again, a fantastic one, The Big Short. Dan, what were your takeaways from The Big Short? And there's a lot that we could unpack from that one. Yeah. So the big takeaway that I think we want to share is just how difficult it can be to stick with your convictions in the first place, and especially to stick with a contrarian opinion while everyone around you is laughing in your face, pressuring you, or, or saying things to the exact contrary. 
So for those who don't know, the big short takes place right prior to the housing crisis of 2007, 2008, and features Michael Burry. Did I say that name right? You did. Yeah, My- Michael Burry and, and a couple other investors, right? So, so you've got um, the, the hedge fund manager at Morgan Stanley, and, and you've got like three or four different people making that trade that are kind of betting against the housing market. Right. They're, they're reading the tea leaves and seeing that something is going wrong. And as they're making these bets, investors are, are being harmed financially during the period that they're waiting for these things to materialize. Because it costs money to take these positions. And every month that you wait, these funds have to pay essentially premiums for for taking that position. And if it's continually wrong, you're going to start hearing voices in your head that say, stop this. Like, you're being ridiculous. Yeah. So in the movie, and I'm not sure how much of this is a a dramatization versus uh, exactly what happened, but Michael Burry, who's running a hedge fund and is essentially a quantitative genius and and really continues to be, he he is still managing money today. Michael Burry has basically said, there's a disconnect here. This stuff is junk. I've looked inside these mortgage bonds. They are nonsense. People shouldn't be buying them. The value isn't there. They're not checking people's credit, like et cetera, right? And this is a guy that had largely been what sounds like an equity investor up to that point and had been looking for undervalued companies. And so at the time, his biggest investors, the guys that basically brought him to Wall Street and said, you know, go forth and prosper. We're going to give you money and and this is what you're going to manage and this will get you on your feet are basically saying, this is crazy. We don't believe this. We're not with you on this. They're firing him. They're pulling their money out. Uh, And the whole time, he's basically being laughed at while having this incredible foresight. And the thing that I took away from it is just how long you have to tolerate being wrong, right? I mean, literally years uh, is is what goes through because I think he starts putting those positions on in like 2005. So you're dealing with investors pulling their money and firing you for two years while you lose money and get laughed at only to ultimately be very, very right and to make tons and tons of money in the process. But wow, does that take a significant amount of conviction that, I mean, I I think people struggle being wrong for months, let alone years. I think that's the most applicable takeaway is when we're talking investing, it's so easy to get carried away with noise, right? As we speak today, we're in the middle of a pretty significant market pullback. And I'm sure there are a million voices around the country saying, you see, September is a terrible time to invest. Well, maybe that's true. It certainly is today. But um, over the long run, it's it's usually great to just be invested. And if you have the patience to sit through these daily fluctuations and not overreact, you can reap great rewards for doing so. So just, you know, having a philosophy and sticking with it is critical to finding success in in almost anything you do. Love that. So if you've got any movies that you think had great lessons that you've learned financially, personal finance, investing wise, we'd love to hear from you. Check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for our show. We still have some great check your balances mugs. We're going to be sending a few more of those out Uh, For folks that have submitted a question and we haven't gotten to them yet, we promise we're going to get there. We thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.